This is going to be a little bit of a, a different Sunday school than usual. For those of you that remember, from uh, about a year and a half ago, my wife was in a very serious car accident when I was halfway through teaching through the first half of the Gospel of John. And so I just had to take some time off because you know, kind of life was thrown into turmoil. Things have kind of gradually settled back into to normal, and so I'm going to be resuming John. We were partway into chapter 6 of John, and so what I've decided to do today is to step back and look at uh, some of the big ideas in John. Um, we're going to look at a few different things and hopefully get back into the mindset of how to look at John and see what John would like to say to us. And uh, we'll get started again on chapter 6. I think I, what I decided to do is that since chapter 6 is so cohesive, I'm going to try to go through the first portion a little bit faster than I went through it before, and then we'll uh, finish up chapter 6 and continue on. Uh, this, this series isn't going to do the entire Gospel of John, it's just going to do the first half, and so we're going to stop roughly after the raising of Lazarus. Um, one thing that's worth thinking about when you're looking at John is that John is very different from the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. This would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is quite different. Um, in the Synoptics, the, you have quite a few miracles. The miracles are often very brief, sometimes you know, just, just a few lines before the, the next thing takes place. John only records uh, seven signs, and almost in every case at least, uh, the, um, the meaning of the sign and, and kind of the repercussions of it are actually more important and take up more space than the sign itself, which, which is quite different than you'll see in the Synoptic Gospels. I think another difference that's helpful to note is that in the synoptics, there's a real focus on Jesus' public ministry. Uh, the synoptics will record some of his sermons and a lot of his parables. John doesn't have any parables at all, not a single parable, whereas parables are kind of uh, one of the main features that you see in the synoptic gospels. Um, the synoptics usually have relatively short, very memorable replies from Jesus. In John, you often see extended dialogues between Jesus and, and different parties. Um, so, the, anyway, having those, those events in mind is, is helpful. But what I really want to focus in on today is John's purpose in writing. Why did John write the Gospel of John? Why do we have it? What's it for? And thankfully, on this question at least, we don't have to speculate. John tells us very clearly, this is in John chapter 20, verses 30 uh, and 31, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, uh, th these are written that we may believe, and by believing we may have life in, in Jesus' name. The, the first thing, though, that I'd like to ask about is what John means by you. There's two possibilities. John could be referring to unbelievers, and there's good reason to think that. You know, John is very often the gospel that uh, someone might read first. Many have come to Christ by reading the gospel of John, and it, you know, I think if you're, you're talking to someone that's interested in Christianity, encouraging them to read John is, is an excellent idea, and so that, that's certainly one possibility. But the other possibility is that the meaning might be more along the lines of that you might continue believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and I would lean towards that one. The, the reason that I would say that is 
I would point to the theological depth of the Gospel of John. Um, you know, there's uh, so much in the Gospel for, for us to, to feed our faith and to nourish our faith that I think the Gospel is primarily written to sustain faith. Um, and um, so that, that's kind of the way that I would lean, and I'm going to look at, at John a little bit from that perspective this morning, although admittedly I could be wrong. It certainly is possible that John uh, might have written it to bring people to Christ. <clears throat> you know, it, um, so if this is correct, how is the material in John meant to maintain and deepen faith? As we read the gospel and we look very carefully and closely at the gospel, the theme of faith is very significant. It, the idea of faith and authentic belief and forms of belief that are not authentic belief keep coming up again and again and again, and that's what we're really going to be focusing on kind of in this review. But before I get to that, one of the things that we'll see is uh, testimony that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Son of God. In fact, you, one of the things that you might be familiar with about the Gospel of John is that you know, if you look at, at the more liberal end of scholarship, it's the Gospel that's by far the most attacked and the most uh, treated as if it's not authentic material. I, and I think the reason for that is that John most clearly presents Jesus as, as uh, the Son of God, as, as God uh, in, in the Gospel, um, more so than the, the, than the other Gospels. We, um, we also see testimony uh, about who Jesus is from John the Baptist. Um, we see Jesus' power that's displayed in a range of uh, situations. You've got you know, healings of paralytics, healings of uh, blind individuals, storms called, 5,000 people fed with seven loaves of, of barley. So you see you, um, a great deal of power from Jesus, but I, I don't think that's primarily what John is referring to when he's saying that he's writing this that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The reason I would argue that is that John records fewer miracles than the synoptics record. Um, and so I, I think instead what we want to do is we want to look carefully at these signs. Oh, by the way, uh, John is the only gospel that refers to what we would call miracles as, as signs. And re remember that a sign is not so much significant on its own. A sign points to something. We used the example of a family driving to the Grand Canyon, and they might drive and get to the sign that says Grand Canyon and get out of the car and take a picture and drive back. Well, they've missed the point of the sign. The sign itself is not important. What the sign points to is important, and that's certainly the case with the signs in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> If we look carefully at the signs, what we see in the, those signs are pictures that Jesus provides through those, um, especially we, if we look at those in the light of the Old Testament, the signs we see unmistakable images of someone who could only be God and who could, who could only be the Messiah that's foretold in the Old Testament. So let's think about the wedding at Cana, for example. There's a nameless groom, and this groom has failed to provide wine, and the wedding feast is about to end badly. Um, in that culture, if a groom failed to provide wine, it would at the minimum be kind of a, a social failure and a stigma that would hold over that couple for many years. Uh, apparently, it could actually invite lawsuits. Um, 
which you know, could have brought that, uh, that new couple to financial ruin. Um, so at a surface level, we see Jesus that's able to perform a miracle that saves this new couple from shame and from the liability that they would have faced in this situation. And I, right there, we certainly see legitimate reasons to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But if we step back and look at that at a deeper level, we see a picture of a world that's not able to provide enough wine to have a proper celebration. You know, that world might be able to provide fleeting pleasures, but not lasting joy. Jesus, by providing the wine that's needed, brings authentic, lasting joy. It's not hard to symbolically see uh, Jesus as being able to bring his people into the great wedding supper of the Lamb and the eternal celebration that follows. The world can't provide that. Um, this becomes even more clear in the context where you know, Jesus had been calling his disciples throughout the week, and then this wedding celebration takes place on the seventh day of, of this week. And if we, you go back to the recordings of, of that, you, you'll kind of see that un unpacked a little bit further. You know, another picture that we have, we've got a downcast Samaritan woman. This woman is so ashamed to be around others that her best option is to go out in noonday sun in the Middle East, which would be every bit as crazy as going out in noonday sun, you know, this time in Las Vegas, and, and drawing water. You know, normal, uh, respectable people would have gone early in the morning before it, it got hot and before the sun was beating down. Jesus explains his free offer of salvation in terms of living water, water that completely satisfies thirst where ordinary water only temporarily quenches it. If she comes to see Jesus as the, as the Messiah, she tells the town about Jesus, and many come to faith. There's really good insights in this passage into evangelism. If you uh, were to you know, get on the internet and find quality uh, expository series on John, almost every sermon series that you would find would focus in on that aspect, and that might actually be the only thing that's really looked at uh, in this particular episode. But I think there's a little bit more there that I'd like to sh uh, remind you of. Um, we, we, we do see a wonderful picture of Jesus reaching out to the Samaritan woman, you know, despite the, you know, the scandal of talking to a woman, uh, especially a Samaritan woman. And you know, that, 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 that's a good picture. I think John in, intended that, but th there's a little bit more there. There's a deeper, richer picture. The text specifically mentions that this encounter takes place at Jacob's well. John expects his readers to be familiar with the Old Testament and to think back to other encounters uh, connected to Jacob and the patriarchs. Attentive readers will catch uh, that there's extended betrothals in Genesis and early Exodus. And all of these feature a well, drawing water from the well. Um, the, there's two long ones. This would be in Genesis chapter four, 24 with Rebecca, and then again in Genesis 29 with Rachel and Leah. And there's also a lot of similarities to Moses' betrothal to Zipporah in Exodus 2. But uh, a commentator, Andrew Lincoln, did a really good job of summarizing the key features in these Old Testament betrothal scenes. And so listen to this and think about John chapter 4 as I uh, read this quote from Lincoln. A standard feature of this type scene are that a potential bridegroom or his representative travels to a foreign land, he encounters a woman at a well. There is a dialogue about water, in which water is asked for or offered. The woman hurries home to report the stranger's arrival, and the bridegroom is then invited for, uh, to the future father-in-law's home, where a betrothal is arranged at a meal. In the two Genesis stories, the male stranger also reveals his identity. So we're, we're not going to go through chapter 4, you know, keep what I just went through in mind and look again at John chapter 4. 
uh, or at least the, the first half of John uh, chapter 4, and look for those similarities, because they're striking once they're pointed out. Um, you'll see all of those elements. For example, one of the, the things that comes up is the disciples' concern for uh, Jesus getting a meal uh, when the disciples return and find him at the well. And that, you know, it kind of fits in with the chapter, but it always seemed just a little bit out of place until I realized that John is calling our attention to that to show the, the similarities to these betrothal scenes. So, with all that in mind, let's look at the dialogue, and I, I kind of wish I could put this up on the screen. I, I was hoping we, we'd have a projector this morning, but I couldn't find it. Um, I'm going to read verses uh, 16 through 18 out of John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And what kind of jumps out in what Jesus says is that twice he tells this woman that what, what she said is true. He's commending her honesty. But is her answer particularly honest? No. <laughs> you know, at best, it's evasive. Um, you know, it's technically true, but it's a, a truth that's designed to, uh, to, to hide the truth. It would be probably best described as a lie of omission. So why does Jesus twice commend this woman's honesty in a statement that really isn't very commendable. Um, John is trying to highlight uh, what, what Jesus is, is, is saying. It, he, you know, he, he does it in a way that, if you were looking closely, it catches our attention and we think, why is, is, is John recording that? And a lot of commentators that I, I don't think go quite deep enough, I think, stumble over this, but um, the, I think the reason is that what has happened is this Samaritan woman has unintentionally, inadvertently spoken a deeper truth. She doesn't have a husband, but she needs one. She needs Jesus. And so if this is a picture of a betrothal, what stands out about the bride? Um, there's little that's commendable or desirable about her, um, at least before Jesus encounters her. She's an outcast among outcasts. She's sexually immoral. Um, and you, we recognize uh, and that we recognize sexual immorality as a picture of pursuing false religion rather than pursuing God in the Bible. But there's also animosity in, in this situation. Now, the Bible records the, the Jewish animosity towards the Samaritans, but the Samaritans' animosity towards the Jews is just as deep. Um, one of the, the things that would stand out to somebody that knows the geography of, the, of this particular situation is that you, at, the, at Jacob's well, and this is one of the few places in the Gospels that we know absolutely for certain where this is. You can go there today. Um, if you look around, you'll see, among other things, Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is an important location that's mentioned in the Old Testament, but the Ser Samaritans had built a temple there, and they were worshiping there in the intertestamental period, and around 150 AD, if I remember right, the Jews came in, destroyed the temple, destroyed uh, Sychar, the, the, this city, and you know, hauled many of the Samaritans off and sold them as slaves. So there would also be significant animosity towards Jews among the Samaritans. So you have someone who would hate Jesus because of his ethnicity, and yet we have uh, you know, all these parallels to a betrothal scene. Um, she's utterly undeserving of Jesus' affection. 
just like all of us are, and yet Jesus loves her, and Jesus loves us as well, and he is our bridegroom, although we're completely undeserving of that love, just as this woman would be undeserving of Jesus' love. Now, I know we're not in chapter 4, but I, I took the time to go through this to, to help us to see some of the things that we've seen in John so far and to be thinking about how to read uh, the Gospel of John and kind of remind us what we, we, we have in John. Let's uh, look at, again at something that uh, is, is talked about in the, the statement of, about um, why the gospel exists, why John wrote it, he says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Um, you, once you, you kind of look at the gospel from that perspective, what you'll see is that John's emphasis again and again is on the difference between authentic belief and unbelief, which very often is a form of belief, but it's not an adequate form of belief. And so I'd like to, to look at that. And I, again, I wish I could kind of put these passages up so it would probably be worth turning to John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his names when he saw the sign that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not, and it would be more literally, believe uh, in them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. At a simple level, verse 23 looks really positive. There's you know, no indication that there's a problem, but Jesus sees a problem in, in this apparent belief. Um, Jesus is performing signs during his trip to Jerusalem at the Passover. Many believe in him. What, what's wrong with that? As we look more and more at John's, John's gospel, though, we'll see that belief that's motivated just by miracles almost always strikes an ominous note. Um, we... <clears throat> we'll see that there's something inadequate in, in the belief in, in verse 24. The, um, let's see. What, what is inadequate, though? And John tells us in the following section, it's kind of worth uh, pointing out, and I'm, I'm not going to show this, but if you look at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, you'll see the word man re repeated quite a few times, um, you know, especially in a a more literal translation. What John is doing is he's connecting uh, th this unbelief with the man that comes to Jesus at the beginning of chapter 4 is Nicodemus. Um, Nicodemus, I think, is a representative of the crowd's inadequate belief. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's likely a member of the Sanhedrin, and he comes to Jesus at night. Another thing to note about John is that nothing good ever happens in the darkness. <laughs> and it, this literally happened at night, and at a simple level, you could probably infer that Nicodemus is ashamed to, to be seen with Jesus, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to look at it, but I think John is also telling us more than that. You know, he's you know, highlighting the fact that Nicodemus is also in the dark. He, um, <clears throat> he's, uh, he expressed you know, a similar apparent faith to this crowd. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus' immediate response kind of ignores what Nicodemus says and says, you must be born again. Um, you, and then Jesus presents the gospel, and he emphasizes the need for spiritual rebirth from God rather than anything that can be produced by the flesh. <clears throat> it's worth mentioning, of course, that you know, Nicodemus is a highly educated, highly intelligent, well-respected individual, and he would have devoted his life to the study of the scriptures. 
And he didn't accept Jesus right away. The text is actually ambiguous about what state Nicodemus left his encounter with Jesus in. We see some positive signs, although not convincing signs of faith later in Nicodemus, later in the gospel. But um, it, it certainly uh, must have taken some time uh, if, if he does come to faith. But then the next person that we encounter, we've already uh, looked at. She's an uneducated, uh, unnamed outcast among outcasts. She participates in the false worship of the Samaritans, but she immediately comes uh, to, to faith in Christ when Jesus presents the gospel to her. And in fact, not only does she immediately come to faith, but she leads many in her village uh, to faith. And I think one of the things that we can see that John is highlighting is that you know, the salvation that uh, Jesus brings is needed by the best of us, but it's available to the worst of us. Um, it's, it's available to the, the least obvious candidates for true religion. Um, next, let's take a look at what John uh, deals with uh, it, later in chapter 4 uh, regarding unbelief. So this would be John chapter 4, verse 43. This would be worth turning at because we're going to look at the wording closely. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem for the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so if we, we look at the structure, I'm going to kind of shorten this to, to see the uh, apparent contradiction that John, I think, is deliberately putting into his text. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, the Galileans welcomed him. Um, does that logic follow? And at, at a simple level, no, it, it, it stands out. And unfortunately, you'll occasionally see your really good commentaries that try to make it make sense. One of the things that they'll try to make the case for is that the uh, Judea and Jerusalem, th those areas were actually Jesus' hometown. And so that, but I, I don't think that's what John is doing at all. I think John is deliberately writing things in a way that apparently don't make sense to try to make us think deeper about this. He wants to catch our attention by expressing the truth in a way that appears not to make sense. Um, and a careful reader, which John expects us to be, is going to examine that statement and what occurs around it and you know, the rest of the gospel to try to figure out what John is trying to tell us. Um, and we're going to see this as we continue in the Gospel of John. I, part of the reason I really wanted to highlight this is it's going to be important in, in chapter 7 again. So why does the crowd welcome Jesus? Well, because of the signs that he would performed. And remember in, in John, that should always strike an ominous note. This crowd is drawn to Jesus because of his ability to perform signs. They see him as a source of miracles. They see a possible Messiah that's going to overthrow the burden of the Romans. But they don't see in Jesus someone that is going to provide salvation from the just penalty of the sins that they've committed. Um, and that lack of honor, it might welcome Jesus, but it's exemplified by the official that comes to him with a, a sick son who's sick to the point of death. And Jesus' first response to this official is kind of jarring. He immediately criticizes um, a faith that requires signs, but eventually he goes on to heal this boy from a distance. Um, and the official believes that uh, Jesus' word, he returns home and does come to authentic faith. But why does Jesus initially respond 
um, to the, the request of this father that way. We, we've already seen that Jesus, or that John wants to deal with this way of not honoring Jesus that does welcome him warm, warmly. Um, and the official, I think, rightly sees Jesus as someone that's capable of healing his son. He's, he seeks out Jesus. He travels to see Jesus. Um, he sees Jesus as, as able to... Uh, oops. But, but what's wrong? Uh, see, one pastor that I uh, listened to a sermon from you know, observed that people invariably ask too little of Jesus, but never too much. John, you know, rather strikingly, is making the point that even asking Jesus to save the life of you know, your son is dishonoring to Jesus because it's asking too little of him. Jesus came to do far more than that. We're keenly aware of our needs and desires in this world, but we're always way too dull to the spiritual condition that we're in. We face perfect justice from a perfect and holy God, and if we understood reality and uh, were, were thinking rationally, we would see uh, our condition before God as a far, far larger problem than any, position, uh, any problem that we face from this world. We would desperately come to Jesus for salvation if we grasp our need of, need of that, and then we would seek secondary things connected to this world. Um, Jesus loves this official too much to let him settle for Jesus only healing his son. This account's brief, but I think that you know, Jesus here, and John is pointing out that um, there's this confrontation with inadequate faith that only looks to Jesus for relief for this, from this world's problems. And Jesus is constantly going to, uh, and trying to expose this official's deeper need for real salvation from Jesus. Um, the next sign that John provides is quite different. In Jerusalem, Jesus walks to a pool called Bethesda. There's evidently a belief that if you're able to get into this pool at a certain uh, time when the water is stirred, that th this pool is able to provide healing. And because of that, there's this multitude of invalids around the pool. The text describes them as blind, lame, paralyzed. Jesus goes into this and finds one individual and heals uh, that one individual well, apparently not interacting with, with the remainder. And <clears throat> it, at least the way that I uh, look at this miracle, John is organizing the details in such a way with this miracle that we see a picture of Jesus providing salvation to his people. He's seeking out his own you know, in the midst of, of a broken world and, and making his own whole. You know, the paralytic's only hope in this world is the occasional stirring of this pool, but it's not much of a hope because he has no way to reach it. Um, Jesus comes to him and he provides that healing that he can't possibly obtain for himself. He spots one of his own in the midst of a world of infirm and he seeks out that individual, in, that individual and heals that, that one person. John's going to go on in this section to deal with unbelief, but I think it's primarily by the response of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They see a man that's been paralyzed for 38 years walking, and what do they see? They, they see an apparent violation of their interpretation of the Sabbath laws. And they're completely blind to the new life that Jesus has given to this person. They only wish to persecute Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Um, when they confront Jesus over breaking the sa Sabbath tradition, and he's not actually breaking the Sabbath itself, he's breaking their tradition, um, Jesus could have responded by debating Sabbath laws. He does this elsewhere, but this would keep this at kind of a a relatively you know, less important uh, 
altercation. What does he do? Um, Instead, Jesus responds in a way that's a bit difficult for us to understand. Uh, I'm going to have to unpack what he says, but basically what he says is that God works on the Sabbath, and so because God works on the Sabbath, it's appropriate that I work on the Sabbath. He's claiming to be God. Uh, It's probably difficult to imagine anything much worse that he could have said if his goal was to diffuse the situation. Um, the leaders understand exactly what Jesus is saying. They immediately forget about the Sabbath controversy and they focus on Jesus' claim to be God. You know, the text states that they were persecuting him, um, you know, not only for healing on the Sabbath, but they were seeking to kill him uh, for claiming to be equal to God. So why did Jesus answer that way? Well, I think Jesus' purpose was to bring the issue away from this relatively unimportant question about how to properly observe the Sabbath to the far more important question of who Jesus is the religious leaders. And the, you know, it, it's easy to, to be hard on them, but from a human perspective, it, it's hard to imagine putting more effort into trying to please God. They were the religious conservatives of their day. They believed the Bible that God had given to his people in the most literal sense of any religious group, if, uh, if we're talking about the Pharisees here specifically. Um, and you know, not only did they believe it, but their entire life was constructed around trying to obey the law that's contained in, in that, that scripture. Um, but they completely missed the point of the law, and that, that point was to lead them to Christ. You know, Jesus had restored a person to wholeness before their eyes, a, a sign pointing to the new life that, that Jesus offers. They only saw a violation of their elaborate system of works that they had developed over the years. They were so intent on earning salvation that they were completely blind to the free salvation that Jesus offers. So, um, just to kind of try to sum up what I think is the most important for us to be thinking about as we continue on in the Gospel of John. John wrote his Gospel that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. In the first half of the the Gospel, John is going to focus on seven signs that each provide different perspectives on who Jesus is and why we should look to him for life. So as we continue, we're going to look at another sign. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus performs this sign to point to himself as true food, what we need in order to have life. Uh, we we kind of had to stop in mid-chapter, and so as, as I said, what we're going to do is we're going to go through John 6 a little bit faster than we did, and uh, then we'll kind of slow down and continue with the series. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. And one of the features about John that's probably worth mentioning is that it's generally believed that John is written substantially later than the other three Gospels. Um, It's likely that John had probably read the other Gospels. I, I certainly think that's the case. And John is writing in a way that he's including material that didn't make it into the other Gospels that he really would like God's people to have to, uh, and to be preserved. Um, I can't prove that that's correct, but I, th- I think it is, and I think it's a, a good perspective to have when reading the Gospel of John. And so why does John include a miracle that is well described elsewhere? He doesn't include too many additional miric- or details about the feeding of the 5,000 itself. And the answer is that in the synoptics, they kind of move on from the feeding of the 5,000 right away. John is going to focus in on the response, and that's going to be the bulk of the chapter. Um, the, um, the, the, 
the stress in John is going to be on Jesus as the true bread of life. And a characteristic in this section of John is that John's going to spend you know, a lot more time on the, uh, the meaning of the sign than the sign itself. But before we get into the sign, it, it, it is worth kind of thinking about this point in Jesus' ministry. This is probably towards the end of you know, a period of uh, a lot of public ministry. Uh, after this, Jesus is going to be doing less public ministry and focusing on uh, training his disciples. Um, let's see, in the synoptics, right after this, it's recorded that Jesus sends out, uh, or sorry, Jesus had just sent out the, the 12 to teach repentance, and soon after this, he's going to send out 72 disciples in a similar fashion. And uh, it's worth mentioning that because you know, we, we tend to, to think about the 12 uh, disciples that are recorded, but Jesus had a, an inner circle of 12 disciples, but he also had other followers that were disciples of his. We, we see 72 disciples um, that uh, are, are sent out later. And we, we need to realize that because Jesus in this section is going to lose quite a few of his disciples. And for this particular sign, I think it's actually worth looking at the end before we get to the beginning. So I'm going to read the end of the chapter, and then we're going to uh, take a look at the sign that causes a lot of Jesus' disciples to fall away. When many of the disciples had heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in his self that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Um, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and, it was, uh, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so we're going to see Jesus performing one of his greatest signs. Some would, would refer to this as his uh, most spectacular uh, miracle that he, he performs, and it's going to cost him most of his followers at the end. Um, it's worth bearing that in mind as we, we look at this. So I'm going to read uh, the, the account of the sign itself. We'll be able to unpack just a little bit of it, and we're going to have to stop. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread uh, for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. <clears throat> then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. And when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled twelve baskets uh, with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 
after, uh, sorry, after the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the, into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to make him a king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So why does John add this detail about the time being near the Passover? And I think at one level it, it really was. You know, this is kind of helpful in figuring out where this is in Jesus' memory. It kind of tells us it's the springtime. It explains why there's grass there. But it, I think far more importantly, um, you know, it's going to you know, tell us the theme. If you think back to John chapter 5, Jesus is, is, is in Jerusalem for a feast, but John doesn't name the feast. He could have, but he doesn't. And I think he doesn't want to confuse us because the feast doesn't really have much in common with uh, the, the themes that he's going to be dealing with in the chapter. Here, he tells us that it's around the Passover because this is going to have similar themes. Um, and we're going to come back to those as we develop this chapter next week. But you know, think back to the, the Passover and the departure uh, for, of Israel from the security of Egypt. You know, all their needs were met there, and they went to the desert, um, which would be a suicidal thing to do for that many people at that period of time. There's little water and no food to, to feed a million people. <laughs> um, but there, there's a surprising number of parallels that John's trying to draw our attention to, and I'll, I'll go ahead and close with these. But you know, one of the parallels is that in, in the Exodus, God moves his people from civilization into a wilderness. And the same thing happens here. You know, this, this crowd follows Jesus from civilization into a wilderness. Um, the people were in bondage in Egypt, and God's offering to lead them uh, to freedom. And, of course, we know that the, the world is in bondage to sin, and Christ is coming to lead his people uh, to freedom as well. God provides leadership. Uh, in the Exodus, God pr provides and raises up Moses. Here, you know, Jesus is leading his people. Um, in the wilderness, God provides for his people's need, uh, just as you know, Moses prayed to God and God provided manna. Jesus is going to provide manna to his, or not manna, but bread to his people. And you, you even see the kind of a crossing of a sea to get there, and you see Jesus kind of going up on a mountain. So there's a lot of parallels that I think John brings our attention to because he wants us to be thinking about Exodus, and it's going to be important in the text that follows. One of the things that we uh, see in Jesus is that he asks his disciples how to feed the crowd. They conclude it's impossible. Um, the world is unable to provide enough food to, to really sustain real life. But as we know, Jesus is, is able to provide that food and not just provide it, but provide it with abundance. Um, I think it's, it's fairly clear that this sign points in, uh, you know, uh, to you know, Jesus' ability to provide for his people. Uh, and you know, in, in the ancient world, more so than now, bread would be the main source of calories and sustenance. You know, to us, we kind of eat a, a, a range of things that have probably more calories than we really need. But, you know, in the ancient world, meat would have been a rare treat. Fruits and vegetables, they would have been available seasonally, and they don't provide that many calories, especially vegetables. It's bread that you really get your sustenance from. That, that would have been kind of the, the, the staple then. And so that's uh, that, that's why bread is specifically uh, used here. Um, 
So just as, as you know, physical bread is essential to keep uh, physical life going, the point of this sign is that Jesus you know, is every bit as essential to have spiritual life. Um, in, in fact, you know, more than providing what we need, Jesus is what we need, and that's going to be the point of this sign. Um, the crowd sees Jesus' provision, but they only see worldly provision from him. They don't see past it, as we're going to see. Um, and I think this is probably a good stopping spot. I'm right at 10.15, but we probably do have time for one quick question before we close. Yes? Yes, yeah, and we're, we're definitely going to be talking about that next week, but you're, you're absolutely right. And I think there's a, a lot that we can see that you know, kind of tells us how to approach D Jesus and what, uh, what, what to look for from Jesus, because Jesus offers far more than any of us knows to ask from him. Um, so I think that's probably a good place to close. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to a world that is completely undeserving of you and was completely hostile to you to give that world life, not just life, but life in abundance. I pray, Lord, that you know, as we come back into the gospel, we would see a picture of, of Jesus that makes you more and more desirable and that we would uh, come to you for life and salvation and abundance and everything else that you give freely. In Jesus' name, amen.